0: Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald's Creative I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. Today I'm excited to be joined by Nick Patera. He's the artist and writer behind Axe, Wielder, John, a new graphic novel being crowdfunded right now on Zoop, new crowdfunding platform a la Kickstarter. We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, you may know Nick and his art from projects like The Manhattan Projects, from Leviathan, uh, from the, uh, for the X-Men heads out there, the Sam and Bobby Mojo World Story. From way back when, um, but we're going to talk Axe wielder John as well as Nick's comics career today, and I'm excited to do it. Uh, Nick, thanks so much for joining. I Really appreciate having you here. How are you doing today? I'm doing
1: really good. I appreciate you having me on and letting me uh, hawk my comic book to uh, to your listeners. Uh, yeah,
0: absolutely. I'm, I'm doing
1: good. I'm doing really good.
0: It's a it's been a super successful campaign so far. So that we've got like 15 days left at the time of recording here. You just cracked over a thousand. Backers and and things are looking good. how How has the experience been for you in terms of getting Xfielder John funded? And like, are you is, is it like way beyond your expectations? Is it is it right where you hoped to be? Like, where where do you stand right now?
1: Uh, it's it's really way beyond my expectations. We just cracked one hundred and forty eight thousand sales in sales, over a thousand backers. We've had over sixty bundles sold to bookstores and comic book stores. In my early talks with Zoop about Axelter John, when they were talking about bringing me on, they kind of did a spreadsheet and showed the lowest number. That was about 25,000. That's what we asked for. And then the highest number was about 80. And uh, yeah, we just hit 148. So it's really been unbelievable. Uh, the, the We just added the first art sale to the art sale tier. And uh, we had some collectors step up big and buy full chapters of the book. So that really pushed it over. We were sitting around close to 80,000. Now we bumped up to almost 150. So it's been crazy. And I funded the book myself and didn't take a paycheck for a year and a half while I worked on it. So, you know, I was out about 20, $25,000 and didn't make a paycheck for a year and a half while I tried to get this thing as complete as I could before we launched. And, you know, it's about 85% complete now. We're waiting on colors and I've got some more pages to finish, but we got our print date locked in at August 1st. And so we're just working on the book and completing it until then. So we had a lot writing on it and uh yeah i'm blown away by the response to the book and uh, there's this thing where you do, as a professional you don't really know if people know who you are you know you're like and you're this is a real like putting yourself out there because if it fails then you very give a very public failure but if it's a success it's a very public success you know and so that was a big gamble but i i just believed in the product so much that i i didn't want to ask the uh, publisher if it was okay if i made it i knew i was going to make it no matter what and when i made my mind up a year and a half ago I just uh, said I'm making this thing, and we'll see where the cards fall. So
0: sure, sure, yeah, no, it's interesting. I feel like a lot of comics fans don't necessarily have that have a feel for how much of an investment it is on yourself. You know, when you're when you're putting it in terms of like, yeah, it's a year and a half of work on this. You're not doing other stuff in the meantime because yeah. you're so dedicated to this. Uh, it's it's really remarkable. So, congrats on the early success here and uh and the funding i know there's there's a lot more to come so so let's let's talk the book because you sent me so you sent me this uh it's an unfinished review copy of work in progress right with layouts and script and such uh which led to the delight in seeing a page described with the caption john somersaults forward spinning like a buzzsaw to cut the big butthole monster in half Uh, what does it feel like to have written the most perfect sentence in the english language
1: (laughs) yeah the butthole monster i get a a good reaction to that so i made the early pdf and We've got a great book designer in ben Dider, and Ben Dieter, and when you're putting a book together, this is the first time I've had to put a book together. I, I get like you know little JPEGs from here or there, and on my end, I'm kind of like making this Frankenstein document. But as I'm doing yeah. it, it's like almost readable in a way. It's almost like a really cool back matter document or something.
0: It is, and yeah, uh, so yeah. people
1: get a. I've gotten a better kick out of it than the embarrassment I have for it. You know what I mean? Because I really want people to see it complete and perfect. But uh, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. it's. Uh, and it, I'm always. And it's tough too because I think in the production like cycle, everyone's used to turning everything at the end. But I'm all like, bug the letter, the letter, five more pages, or bug the colorist, like, hey, where are you at? Uh, it makes me stay on them because I want this document always to be getting tighter and tighter. But the letter and our our wonderful book designer actually putting the final together. But yeah, that was a fun. That monster was really fun to design. And uh, yeah, John cuts his ass in half, so it's a, it's a fun it's a fun little thing. <laughs>
0: Which is the thing that can be said of, of many monsters. So, all right, so we're five minutes in and I've hardly, I've hardly explained what the book is here. So let, let's do that. So Axe Wielder John is, this is book one, okay? This is a graphic novel. Axe Wielder John is the main character. He is this barbarian warrior, right? This uber tough, super masculine guy with, he's called Axe Wielder, but honestly, even that understates how many axes this dude has at all times, which is super fun. And he's caught in this, um, uh, fantasy-esque world, right? You have all these monsters, you have all these kings and castles and yada, yada. Um, and he's, he's being hunted by them, but he's also, he was kind of out for revenge because one of his skulls that he loves uh, is missing, I think is the premise, right? Did I miss anything? Is, that's, the, that's the general axe wielder John Pitch, right? Yeah, it's the,
1: it's the story of a faceless barbarian who's cursed to fall in love with the heads of his many victims. So he, he runs around collecting skulls And he loses one, and he's coming to get it back. And uh, so people see him as this crazy man. And uh, you know, when I came up with the idea for it, uh, my daughter was sick in the hospital, my my first daughter. And uh, you know, she's better now, so everything's fine. But what happened at the what what happened at the time was people would be like, give it over to the doctors or give it over to God. And I felt helpless. And uh, when I was in the NICU with her, when she was getting better, I had all this free time. So I started drawing this character who did want to fix things his way. He was a very pig-headed man and he was going to fix the world his way. And then I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if his way of fixing things were chopping them chopping them in half and giving him axes? And so that kind of started a nucleus of an idea. And then you start giving him problems that he can no longer cut in half to solve. And he's got to grow as a character. And it kind of spun out of like this bit of turmoil and stress in our family. And he kind of appeared, you know, from the imagination scape and onto my into my sketchbook. And I always loved the character, and then about a year or a year and a half ago, I said, "No, I'm going to make this book," and uh, tried to honor the way he came to me as like my own little hero. You know, he's like the hero I needed, and so now I'm asking him to provide for me. So now, now, John, <laughs> go make me some money out there with this concept. So yeah, it's a yeah, it's yeah. a fun it's a it's it's my dream project. You know, like writing and drawing my first story and drawing it my way, and I hired the editor I wanted, who's an Eisner Award winner. Winner and I hired a great colorist and works at the big two and a great letter works at the big two. So I've made an all star team that uh you know to put the book together and I just want to make it as as top notch as possible.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I can see that. No, I've I've been you know reading and, and hearing about the the challenge like the challenges with your your daughter there and just like the I have three little kids all under five right now. So just like my my heart bleeds for that, right? Just total empathy, and I'm I'm really glad to hear everyone's doing well. Um, at the moment, it's. It's not hard to see when you read this, which first off, like incredible looking book, like, like I expected that because I've read Manhattan projects. I've read your work. I love your art. This, I feel like levels up from there. And I kind of want to talk about that because it does feel like you're, you've gone to another level and it's, it's fantastic. Um, but one thing that really comes out in the story is this feels personal, right? This feels like a work where you're putting a lot of yourself right into this character, of John, a lot of your own journey of fatherhood. Um, what were the hardest parts of, of, putting yourself out there like that, you know, because it does connect on a certain personal level.
1: I think the, the hardest part creatively was, um, I think the first part was making the decision to do it. And then like, I'm going to work a year and a half. That, like a very hard decision. Like my wife knows I'm going to stop making money. I'm not going to get any Marvel work. I'm not getting cover work. I'm just doing that's That's, that's a big, that's a tough decision. The hard part for me was since I've worked with other writers and very good writers for my whole career, um, I only think about, or I used to only think about how the reader absorbed panel to panel transitions, meaning that I'm walking to a room, the room's got to, the perspective's got to be right, the the environment's got to be right. Now he's shutting the door. I'm only concerned about how you are absorbing the visual narrative sequentially, panel to panel. On this one, you can write something, but so much of the story exists in your head that isn't on the page. And there's a gap. The gap that you have to focus on now isn't from my eye to the page, it's from the reader's eye to the page in a sense, because what, what I want from the story, am I getting that? And like with this advanced re- review copy, people are saying that, but then I don't know if there's being nice to me because, you know, like Dave took the time to interview me. You're going to say, you're going to like, uh, he kind of <laughs> wants me to think it's a cool fatherhood story or something. Right. Yeah but, yeah. but I don't really know. So I don't really know. We've gotten really good advanced reviews. And, uh, but that, the, the interesting thing is like, how do you feed the information in a non-over-overuse of exposition to get to get the story and the beats you want into the reader's head, so it starts living in their head instead of just what I want is stuck in my head and not transferring over? And Chris Stevens, who's an Eisner Award-winning editor, I hired him because I loved the stories he had put together, and I knew he would be a huge help. And obviously, I've worked with Hickman and Jonathan um, helped me with the script. You know, I would send it to him every you know every four or five months, and he'd look it over and give me a grade on it and tell me maybe think about this or that. So I've, and my Mm -hmm. wife's a writer and, you know, every night we'll talk about a scene or something and I'm sure she's sick of hearing about it after a year and a half. But, but so like I've had those (laughs) things, Uh, the personal parts were easy in a sense because so much of John is reflective of that situation with me. And I really took it in a very literal kind of cartoony way where I was like, okay, uh, John, like there's this, this thing with John where it's like, he is going to be the most alpha male character I've ever wanted to see on a page. But then, yeah. but then, so like, and he's going to sharpen his axes. And so then I said, okay, if he's going to be over the top and do things his way, then you will do, then that's his, that's his, he's like my leader. He's like my hero in that sense. So I said, okay, then you will do this book your way. You will sharpen your pencils instead of your axes and you will plunge forward and make this thing happen. And so I, he was kind of like a guiding light. And I, so much of me personally, left because I was trying to mimic what he was to me or what I needed. So he's almost like a projection of what I wanted. That sounds kind of artsy and like meta, but it is kind of true. So it, when like, I've had a publisher reach out now and they've offered my little imprint Karoshi, our own line. And I would just think, well, then instead of just seeing what they're offering, I'll tell them what I want. And it's a different mindset, you know, where the artist in me might just be like looking for acceptance but the man that John is would be like, well, this is what I want. And it's a two different mindsets that and it's like you're I'm playing a character or something with the way I'm directing my career. And John's kind of my leader there. It's a very weird thing to say, but it, it is it is how I've handled stuff. And as far as the emotional yeah, it's interesting. The emotional beats in the story, I try to set them up and I hope they pay off. You know, I'm trying to hide. I'm trying to hide some of the heart of the story behind the blood and gore, you know, like it's a mask. And, uh, it's a, like yeah. an illusion, yeah. like here's, look at this guys, and then pull that away and it's something else. And I've set that up in all the plot points throughout the entire story. I know the story ends and I'm going to keep what I'm what I really love in storytelling is when an author shows you one thing and removes something and shows you a different thing, but everything they said was consistent, but also this is true. This new thing is true. And so like, that was a real fun thing. Um, with my daughter being healthy and everything, then it, I'm not as emotionally attached to like the nucleus of how he came to me to begin with. Now I just think like, well, he came to me when I needed me. So I'm going to put him on the page and make this happen.
0: Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. No, it's, it's interesting how that, that meta storytelling way where it can manifest in your own, you know d- your own development and your own things that you want in the world that's that's super cool uh and i will say you know you say some of the, definitely when i set up some of these interviews there are times i will admit where i get i, I set it up in advance I'm like it's this person i want to talk to but then i get the work and i'm like hmm yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah, like yeah. well yeah, that's actually not my favorite not a problem here i genuinely genuinely love this book i think it's super fun i'm really excited to see the final product i highly i i totally anticipate you're going to see Axe Wielder John on some best of the year lists uh, at the end of this year. Like I, I really, really believe that. I think, I think that's going to happen. So congrats on the success, obviously with the launch, but also like this is, this is going to get some good reviews because there's not that much stuff that looks like this, honestly, like there's like, just on a visual level and I know it's not what you want to hear. Like the story is compelling. There's a really great twist in this. I won't spoil it. Um, But just on a visual level, you know, you've talked about working on an 11 by 17 board for each panel of the book not page panel. Can you explain for the non artists, like what this means?
1: Yeah. So (laughs) like, what is like, what is the average comic book is, you know, probably 10 inches high by, I don't know, seven inches wide, but uh, the original art is drawn 11 by 17. So it's reduced down. So it looks better. So the average page is 11 by 17, but it's got panels on it. Right. So the panels are, you know, one sixth of a page or something like that. Well, on Axel or John, I'm doing it all in horizontal panels and every panel is on its own 11 by 17 board. So each page is 17 by 33 inches high. And I'm just, uh, trying to, I knew that if I was going to launch my writing career, that I would need an incredible artist, one better than me to do it. So then I said, then I need to be better. I'm going to, then I will draw the bigger, it will reduce down better. And then I switched my inking technique. I used to use microns when I was breaking in, but I fell in love with like all the Japanese tools and all the dip pens and I used to ink like that for the last three or four years. And I said, you know what? I'm going back to something steady. I'm going to use the smallest microns. And if artists out there, the 003 micron is the smallest technical pin you can buy in mass and 005 micron. And I inked it in the smallest pens and I drew it on the biggest, what I know to be the biggest paper. So I, I'm just trying to do it at a very high end. And and what I, I knew, it was almost a crutch, right? Because I know I can draw it decently and well. you know. I, I made the New York Times bestsellers list and Eisner nominated and that's been really nice. But so I knew I could draw well enough to launch my writing career. But the story, I just needed it to be, I told myself and my wife, if I can just be just okay or good and draw it incredible, it'll be a great product. But I'm hoping the story is going to be good to great, you know, and so it's a really special evergreen story. And I don't know if I'll get there. You know, I don't know if I've gotten there yet, but uh, it's 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 my goal. So I, I knew what I was doing. It was a very literal uh, thing and I have this really great rep Felix Comic Art and you know he's averaging like a thousand dollars a page on the original art so we're adding those totals in as they come in and it's really blown the campaign up. And I, I knew that if I drew it that big and with my fan base that he's built for me over at Felix uh, Comic Art that I knew that we were gonna add we always knew we had that tier to add to the Zoop campaign to really make it a special number. And I didn't and I kinda had that in my back pocket too where I was like Man, if this thing launches at 10,000, I know I can at least add 30 or 40,000 and get it done, and it doesn't look like an embarrassment. So I had kind of built in a couple of safe, you know, fail safes in there for myself.
0: Yeah, cool. You, you seem pretty, pretty strategic, pretty, uh, I, don't, I don't know, ahead of the curve, but definitely strategic about selling the original art, right? And, and factoring that into this campaign, as well as just kind of having that income stream. Um, and obviously, here, you know, like you're saying, because you're doing each panel blown up so much, right? Each one of those can go out to to buyers. Are there pages or are there panels where you're like, I need to keep that one? Like, I don't, I don't actually want that to go to anybody. Do you have moments like that? There's a
1: really few cool ones that I like that my little girls like, because uh, even though it's a, it's a very violent comic, they'll, they'll see me working on it all the time. And we have this character named Horace, who's a cyclops and he's like 30 foot tall and he's blue and he's got. He's kind of got a bald head and, uh, my little girl looks at it and she says, turtle turtle, you know? And so I like, I want to keep that one. I want to keep that one. But Felix kind of has this thing where he wants to offer it all at once. And then if they don't sell, then, you know, then I can, you know, maybe talk to him about pulling them down after a while, but he doesn't, he doesn't like holding back. You know, he wants to make sure that when a buyer comes to him and they read the book or they see the book online or whatever, that, they he, they want, he wants the buyers to have an opportunity to get it. So I'm going to, I'm going to, and I also am very, it's very important me to have that big number because I want this to be a forward facing success. So I told him at the beginning, we can sell all of these because the bigger that number, the bigger nucleus I have to launch my next book or my other projects I have planned. So, uh, when, when this all, when I sent him the art, he saw it and he was like, man, this is really cool. Like I've never sold art that looks like this. It looks awesome. Are you sure you want to sell it all? And I'm like, dude, let's win, man. Just get the most for right. it, and let's do it. Uh, I can, I'll draw another one for my girls down the line, you know, or they can learn to be artists <laughs> and draw. But yeah, there's there's definitely pieces that mean a lot. And the twist there's a there's a twist in the book that means a lot to me that actually shows what the story's about versus what I presented. Right. And those pages mean a whole lot. You know, those are those are cool pages. So
0: yeah yeah definitely you you talked so this is the you know the first collaboration between yourself as as writer and artist and i think it's coming together quite nicely um but you talked about getting notes from like hickman who you've collaborated with in the past uh do you have any really memorable notes or like are there there are any like essential advice or tips you got on the on the writing side of things as you were working on this
1: yeah there was a great on the first page and i'll try to do it off the top of my head uh and but there's an opening line we have a frame narrator who's like a 12 year old girl and the way i thought about that was if you're watching all this violent stuff if it's presented through the lens of a of a sweet narrator that it would be a balanced meal in a sense instead of being like a drum beat or a chili pepper that's super hot that you put that you put hot sauce on you're doing like a the chili pepper with cream cheese and it's like easier to absorb than if it's just over the top. So she's this frame frame right. narrator that opens the, the frame narration. And there's a line that Hickman cut out that I liked, but it was really something a writer would put in their notebook that they fall in love with their little darling. So it opens now and she says something of along, along the lines of, um, she has a problem with lying and her father tells her to, um, if she's going to keep making up stories that it's best to write them down. And then I had the next line say, better be called a storyteller than a liar after all. But that's something that I think and not what a little girl would think or say. And so he mm. chopped that out and that helped something really cool. And she goes out of her way at the very beginning. I don't think this is spoiling any things. She goes out of her way to profess in the in the narration right at the beginning, it's not in there anymore. But she says, but this story is real. This story is true, right? And then Hickman said, chop that so then when people realize later that it's not a fable, that, that the frame narrator is actually a character in the book, it'll have like a little more twist or meaning. And those two chops, they're so small, they were only a sentence or two. But what they did for the plotting made it, I think, more interesting on how the reader was absorbing it. But I was kind of stuck down in my journal and getting those lines on the page because I like those lines but was it right for the character? And it wasn't right for what the reader was imagining. And Hickman thinks in those kind of terms, because he's a writer and he's a fantastic one. And so little things like that, he probably chopped seven sentences sentences up of the rough that I sent him. And he kind of just, it kind of just kind of gluing itself together and me and my editor. And I will send the rough out to a lot of different people. And a lot of times I don't agree with their edits, but every note in the, the Chris Stevens, my editor was when he read over the notes with me, he's like, you know, all of these are correct. I think all of these are right. Mm-hmm. And we hadn't caught him, you know, we'd read it 20 times and we hadn't caught him. So John was doing, uh, he's a very special writer and he's got a very special mind for stories. So, yeah,
0: oh, that's cool. That's cool. That's really interesting. Yeah. You can see having read it now. It's like, oh yeah, no, I, I like that makes sense. Like it, it definitely feels tighter. And that twist hits, um, significantly, I, I think in a way that it wouldn't have necessarily otherwise. Uh, so throughout the book, and again, I, I super don't want to spoil anything. I, I want people to check this out. Um, But there's a a sequence that really highlights the theme of John being misrepresented, right? This idea about uh, being perceived one way, things being said about him, but he ultimately kind of doesn't really care about all that because like the truth is the secret. And again, I won't say what it is. Um, Again, like this clearly being a personal book for you, like, is that something that you felt a connection in terms of like? being misrepresented misunderstood in comic circles like is that like like in terms of like some of the stuff about like you know with leviathan getting you know canceled early and just you see, you see some of the fans and the outrage and people you know blaming you for books getting canceled stuff like that like is there a, a personal layer there or am i reading too much into that
1: I, I mean no i mean i love that about life in general i think when you are presented um people the way our brains work is we have to categorize stuff because there's so much information so we stereotype. And I think stereotypes are kind of wonderful and terrible at the same time because like they're, sometimes they're true. Like me, I'm a chubby Italian guy. So you can say a lot about of Italians or guidos or whatever. And they're kind of true, you know, but then if you get to know me, I'm the, it's a kaleidoscope of different windows into who you are. Like your mother knows you different than your wife. Your kids know you different than your mom people on the outside and they're like, I am like, uh, I like to arm wrestle and do manly stuff. I'd like to think I am, but I'm a sensitive guy too, you know? So, uh, I thought John should have that reflection, uh, in terms of my career and stuff. Yeah. There's like with the Leviathan stuff, we can talk about that. It's like, uh, whenever my kid got sick, uh, the book got put on pause and specifically canceled from image. And so they canceled it and the book was already uh, going negative or about to be negative at the time and I, I'll tell you numbers were like $9,000 in the hole in the book. So I got to go back and work on that and finish it, which me and John planned to. And, but Layman at the time was frustrated with me because I didn't get back to it. And I took a freelance gig because we had all these medical bills coming up and DC offered me Flex Mentallo. And he knew that that would pull me away and delay that book more. But I but I don't take an advance at image I never have. And uh, they've offered it, but I just don't think it's right to take it versus a freelance gig. I'll, I'll take the, I'll take the money obviously. So I did that. And then I know Layman was hyper frustrated and he tweeted out, uh, you know, a bunch of stuff like, uh, Nick can finish the book if he wants or whatever. And then I'll text Layman, and we're completely cool. I'm like, dude, we'll get back to it. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Like, we'll, it's everything's fine. But then the narrative, because Layman tweeted that out is that Nick is le- the worst or whatever. And then, and then specifically Bleeding Cool ran an article about it. And I like Rich. He's fine with me. But uh, I could tell is personally, like Rich had clicked and saved every tweet about Leviathan that Lehman had made. But Lehman was announcing a new book at the time, his Nick Bradshaw dinosaur book. And I thought to, to me, Lehman is launching his new book. He wants to cover for why Leviathan's not available. So he sends all of his collected tweets to Rich. Now, I'm not a detective but that's what that's what i expect well when that article <laughs> runs and it's a collection of stuff but not once in that article did they mention that my daughter had stomach surgery that we lived in the Ronald McDonald house for 2 months that she came she yeah. came home with a colostomy bag we you know dealing with a 9 9 day old with a colostomy bag uh, and yeah, not yo. working coming back having reconstructive surgery to fix that uh, me not taking an advance on the book They don't say any of the stuff that's, that's really happening. And I always always try to be a professional. So I didn't respond to those tweets. And I had people tell me like, they didn't even mention that your kid was sick. They don't even mention that stuff. So there was a big part of me as a creative where I was just like, no part of me wants to go finish this book because I was angry. But I, I do know that I'm obligated to stores and fans that, that did like the book to finish it. So I told layman, Hey, we'll finish the book. Don't worry when I get back to it. And then as I was working on, when I came back home and things got settled I took a couple other freelance gigs and started working on John. Uh, we were so in the hole on Leviathan and we I got to we got to pay colors out of pocket too and they're very expensive because I'm so detailed and over the top that we were just going to be more and more in the hole and I'd already I fell in love with the story of Wilder, and I said well I better launch this almost complete if I'm going to do a new project and not finish Leviathan and that's kind of how it went and I just had no no interest in me at the time when I read that article did I want to go back and do uh oversized pages super detailed cities blowing up for someone who didn't clarify in my opinion how it actually the situation went down and so uh, i'm over it now my kid's healthy uh i I still have my drawing ability everything's fine but that's that's how i personally felt about the situation at the time
0: right right No, it sounds a bit messy definitely no because definitely to like comics fans it was just like you know, well you're sitting alone in your home with no responsibilities. Why can't you draw these uh draw these dinosaur dragons? <laughs> you know? And it's like they don't know what's going on.
1: To clarify, the fourth issue's done. We're planning on finishing the fifth issue when uh in uh at the end of the summer. I've already talked to Eric Stevenson about it and we're gonna we're probably gonna go straight to trade. Uh that's that
0: So you will put the trade uh, on. that's yeah. what he
1: wants to do. Uh so that's where we're currently at, you know. i and me and Layman are cool, man. Like uh we still message each other, everything's fine, but uh, you Good know, I'll, I'll figure I'll clarify the situation a little bit on my end because I've never really said anything publicly about it.
0: Yeah. If he, I mean, if he could come back from you savagely murdering him in Manhattan yeah. projects, you know, hopefully he can come oh, back so yeah, you're too. a long time fan.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so me and him have been so, we've been friendly for so long and hanging out at shows. And anytime I was friendly with anyone, they would be murdered in Manhattan projects. So, and, and, and yeah, speaking yeah. of his co- other collaborator, Rob Guillory, um, who's, um, uh, you know, fantastic creator himself. Uh, and I killed him in Manhattan projects. He's actually a dear friend of mine and I'll go to, I'll go f- to him for advice all the time. So, uh, yeah, shout nice, out. Shout nice. out yeah. Rob. I got,
0: to, I got to talk to Rob about a uh, farmhand, which is a book. I oh love. yeah. That's really yeah. good stuff. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. All right. Good. Glad to hear that about Leviathan. I think fans who did dig that will definitely, uh, definitely look forward to the trade there. Um, all right. So with Axe Builder John, let's, let's talk finally here with this one about, Uh, why zoop, right? Why zoop instead of Kickstarter? It's a newer thing. Um, Kickstarter obviously has kind of the brand recognition. Uh, clearly you're having a lot of success with this, but like what went into that decision?
1: It was a tough decision. Um, the, the, it was tough, but it was easy. I look at their model and their model is something like, um, they will do the fulfillment, the distribution, they do the customer service, they help reach out to third parties, all the stuff that you don't want to do as a creative. But, but you have to balance that against they charge a little more to do that. They also don't have the biggest footprint because they're pretty new. And when I watched them do the John Paul Leone artist edition, I thought that product was so good that the fans should show up, and they did. So I thought if I can make a product that's really good, will the fans show up? And that gave me a little confidence. And I, I called John Jonathan Hickman and told him I was thinking about going there and I had some preliminary conversations with the guys in soup. Jordan and Eric, uh, the two guys that run it. And uh, he said he was thinking about using them, too, for his Substack stack uh, hardcovers that he released. And so that gave me a little more confidence. And, and as soon as I told them yes, but didn't sign any paperwork, but Kickstarter saw the book online, and uh, they reached out, and they gave me a really hard decision. They said they'd give me their featured spot on Kickstarter if I go over there, which is those are all hundred thousand dollar campaigns plus uh, when you get that spot. So I was like, Oh God, you know, like I already told Zoop, yes, but I haven't signed anything. But I told Zoop, Hey, I let him know. I said, Hey guys, they offered me this. I'm still rolling with y'all. Just letting you know, but we got to make this thing happen because I'm now I'm in, I can't afford a $20,000 campaign. You know, like we gotta, we gotta, everything I need, like I need you guys backing me and, and jumping through hoops for me and man, they've been, they've been over backwards for me and they, I I've made some basic demands like working with third parties like Felix Comic Art. I said this Felix Comic Art thing is is I need him I need him doing his magic with the collectors. I need y'all to work with him. So I, I put them in touch and they agreed to work together. And this is things you could never do with Kickstarter that are so specific to a individual creator's needs with individual creators' projects that Zoop can do. And that's highly attractive if you're smart enough on to, to utilize them. So Zoop has been amazing. Uh, uh, I'm glad we're building a home there. I've got an email list now of over a thousand supporters and, uh, and I got a product I'm hoping fans will really enjoy.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So with Axe Builder, John, I've seen a bunch of it again. I think it looks amazing. I'm super looking forward to the final. How for people out there, like how close are you to the final? Cause this is like, that's the thing about backing. This is like, you're, you're very far along in the process here. Like, it's not like you're going to get the backing and then start the book. Like there's a lot here that's already done. Um, what would you tell people about where you're at in the process? And then kind of like, there's a book to plan, like what's your timeline and, and plans for kind of where this goes.
1: So what I want to do is do a book every year. Um, the main story is 108
0: pages I've got some extra
1: stories. Not all are announced, but you can talk about them here. We got Das Pastoris that we just unlocked for a hand-painted short story. Um, I, he will probably take longer than me to finish my last like 14 pages or so that I got to do. Coloring wise, it's getting tight. The colorist is a little behind. We got about 35, 40 pages in, but it's a huge book. So we're bringing in with, with, with my garland. I've, I've worked with Felipe Sobrero before he colored some of my Ninja Turtles work. He colored Trad more and Luther Strode. So I just hired him to double team the colors to speed things up. So like uh, we have uh, a, a deadline to make it to the printers to hold our spot. And that's August 1st for the final print file. So we, the book will be done by that day. It has to be, otherwise we get bumped and the prices go up because of the, you know, papers, papers very expensive right now. And so we're currently on pace to get it done. Uh, to me, my end is 85% done my part of the drawing and stuff, but, but there is production and putting the, a book together. So we're crunching now. Um, we got a whole creative team, you know, Ben Deiter, who's was the designer of little bird and precious metal and, as a Eisner nominated book, little bird and it's beautiful. So he's putting the book together. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm paying i I'm paying all pros to work on this thing. So we're, we're crunching to get it done and it's a real deadline. It's not like a, it's not like one that can be pushed, you know? So, this is the first time I've been in this position before. So yeah, I think I got about 85 pages finished of a 108, 108 page story. And then there's design pages in there to bump it up a hair. And then we got a, I got another short story planned the the all the artists on my my stretch goal tiers already have their stuff and i'm gonna run their stories anyway but they're costing me money so i'm I'm putting that they're unlocked for stretch goals but like Doss already has the script and uh chris mooneyham is a a good good friend he did five ghosts and he's worked at marvel in dc and He's doing a short story, and that's our next stretch goal. But you know, it's going to be in there anyway, if we make it or not, because they're already nice. working on them. So, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff behind the scenes that are I'm learning a lot about. But I'm having the Zoop team behind me was a big part of that as well. I'm learning how to deal with printers, learning how to just also let go control over some things too, where you want to be hands on, but you just can't because you got a lot of work to do. So,
0: mm, sure, sure, yeah, no, very cool. All right, so I'm, I'm also doing this reading club right now where we're going through um Hickman's creator own works and as it happens we just covered the Red Wing and right now we're doing Manhattan Projects both books that you you drew uh I'm having a blast revisiting Manhattan Projects like it it, reading that one it feels to me like when you when you look at the stuff you guys did before that it feels like you really leveled up on that project like both of you honestly um did you feel that at the time and like like looking back Like, what do you you think it was about that book that drew out, like, oh, I can take this to another level?
1: I think I've had, like, three leaps. I think Leviathan was, like, a creative weirdness because I was doing all kinds of crazy, like, different techniques and stuff. But I do know specifically from from Red Wing to Manhattan Projects and Manhattan Projects to Axe Wilder, there are three creative jumps, two creative jumps in those three projects. One, Red Wing was my first book I ever drew ever above eight pages. You know, I'd done stuff at a little bit of Marvel, like you mentioned, but that was like eight page stories, you know, and it was like not really a whole book. And then I went from that eight page story to doing a whole trade paperback. Um, And so what happened there was I drew it and I wasn't me like on on red wing. It felt a little Mm. stiffer. It felt a little like the detail and the effort was there. But I think like one thing specifically is the characters. If you blacked them out, you probably couldn't tell the difference between them and, That, like, I needed a fat guy, I needed a skinny guy, I needed a gaunt guy, but they were all the kids were about the same and they were a little more blank faced. So on Manhattan Projects, I was like, I'm going to silhouette every one of these characters out, you know, and silhouette is just a shadow or covered black ink, you know, and you're going to be able to tell exactly who they are, even though they're all you know, the slender old men in the forties and suits, I wanted to make sure right. this guy had a blockhead. This guy had a bulbous nose, this guy had square ears. And I was really playing with cartooning in a way that I knew the readers would see it as this more fun, playful, whatever. And it, it is strange. You know, my, my, my work is idiosyncratic and it's a little bizarre, but it works really good for sci-fi and especially on the Manhattan projects. So that's the series I'm known the most for. It's what we were either nominated for. And anyone who knows me probably knows me from that book. Um, and then on Axwood or John going to a barbarian, I could not, and getting into that market with like Conan collectors and cool He-Man toys and stuff, you can't draw like old men scratching their ass, you know, you, or like guys picking their nose or being strange. It's got to look stoic. It's got to look cool. The, the, you shrink the heads, pump up the muscles, and like uh, it's got to, there's a sleekness. Like I needed to try, and I don't draw that cool but I needed to draw cooler and you can't say Manhattan projects. The book might be cool, but the art is sh- more strange than cool. I think now the response to the actual or John art is that it's very cool looking, you know, people are like, Oh, this looks awesome. And I knew that I knew yeah. that as a selling point because the market for strange, weird stuff is a lot smaller than the market for big superhero stuff that just looks awesome. And I was like, I'm going to make this try to, I'm going to try to design these guys to look fantastic. Uh, like, like you can't believe what I'm drawing, like the butthole monster or the Lord Fang character and all the skin and cells and te- and teeth. And then have John cut somebody in half and show their guts flying out. And it would just felt like, like a heavy, like heavy metal was such an artist uh, magazine, you know, with with Mobius slots yeah, right. metal Herlot, And I was like, I want my story I want Heavy Metal to reach out to me to see if they could run Axewilder John. You know, I want to draw it that cool. And I, I would have drawn Axewilder John as like a, like, you know, Sergio Argonis drew his, his barbarian guy. It wouldn't have been as cool. It would have been like something different. And I wanted this to be cool. So I was very cautious, uh, conscious of those steps in those three books
0: yeah yeah no metal Hurlon definitely stands out i mean the, the mobius impact i think is clear um and, and i know you've talked about it as well just in the, in the designs just in the feel right even the way it's colored i'm sure you know you've had lots of conversations with with michael garland about you know just the way that thing looks like w- so like when you finish a page on actually at this point like what do you like what are you looking for to feel like okay i hit that like i i got it where i needed it to be um like what are the things for you that t- that have to stand out
1: it's interesting because the story. Since I'm writing it now, um, I lay it out and I run the layouts by my editor, and we talk about the story beats. And he'll be like, "Maybe this shot works better," and we argue it out. By the time it's tightly penciled or laid out with with the script intact, it's almost like the the work is done because now I know I can draw it. You know, because I didn't give myself a shot I couldn't pull off or something. So I, mm. I, it's almost like a work. I put my workman hat on there. And then as I'm drawing this thing, and they take forever because there's such a large board or such or three large boards when I'm working on these pages that uh, I just want to make it look nice. You know, I want to make it look good because I know the beats are right or as right as what I can try to get them with what with the team I have. And then I just wanted to make it look awesome. And so I'll use the tiny pens, pull it in, and then I got to scan the three boards, got to stitch the boards together in Photoshop, clean them up, and then I send them off to Mike. And so that's that that's the process. And uh I I first thing I do is send it to my editor and send it to Mike and you know, show my wife and a couple of really close art buddies and they'll they're always they always lie to me and say it looks amazing, it looks great. And so that feels good. You get your dopamine hit and then you move on to the next thing. You yeah, know? yeah.
0: Very good. Very good. What was the with Manhattan Projects, you talk about how it's it's a quirky book, right? And it, it definitely is. But you're also, you know, your style there is it's the it's that Frank quietly influence but like in in character design right in and quietly like the interesting thing about quietly is like he has that those idiosyncrasies right with characters who who have too many details on their face and they look kind of strange you know the way people can but then he can also do the really cool superhero stuff right yeah. like it, like his Superman obviously is like literally iconic um and you can see that influence but in Manhattan projects like did you get any flack for like caricatures of any of those characters like like were there any like Like, the Richard Feynman cap was, like, furious or something. Like, was there any of that with any of the genius camps? It was
1: interesting. Like, once you cartoon him and you give him the name, and Hickman told me this, too, then it's that character, as long as you draw it consistent of your interpretation. But it was interesting. Mm. I, like, ran into, like, Werner von Braun's relative or something that came and bought the book for no kidding yeah and i was like oh god we gave him a robot arm and we made him this crazy nazi which i think he was you know in history i don't think he i don't think he was a crazy <laughs> yeah. nazi but i'm like crap you know every family history is like he wasn't really like that you know that's just what media says yeah right. we really hammed up the nazi part you know so uh that was a little strange she was like his great great granddaughter or something i remember this at a show in houston and uh and so
0: like the but so like she came to you at a con? Yeah, like, what like, oh, is the I, scenario I know, here? I heard, yeah,
1: I heard uh, Werner Von Braun is in this book. He's actually like my great great granddad or something strange like that. And it was like he's like an yeah, extended yeah. relative or whatever, second cousin or something. And uh, I remember that I was like, oh god, I don't know if you like, I don't know if you'll like this, but uh, that was the only strange thing. Uh, but no one's ever said anything about that. I think people got it right away. They got the fans got Manhattan Projects before I did because when me and Hickman were working on it, we did that Marvel style and I've got my own idea for what the characters are saying. So I hand it off to back to John and John puts the word balloons in. And sometimes I'm like, well, I didn't really draw that face to say that or whatever. And so like, to me, there's like little broken bits in there that aren't perfect, but the fans just ate it up, man. They, they loved what we were doing and the way John understands story and was able to to tighten all that up and pull it all together, no matter what weird stuff I was drawing. Uh, they were getting a full plotted out thing, even though we were working very organically. And uh, when when the fans, almost every time I doubted an issue, uh, I would get a response of like five star, five out of five stars. This is cool. I'm like, man, I don't get it. I don't get it. You know, early on, like the second <laughs> issue, the second issue specifically, because in the, in yeah, the yeah. first issue of that we're like, we, we give a little cameo of Einstein. He's just like over his shoulder. Right. And then the next issue, we don't see any of the team again. It's all Werner Von Braun issue. And we see Feynman get dropped in to do him. And I'm like, are people going to be mad that they only saw Einstein for a second? Are they going to, or like, do they want to see the Manhattan Projects? It's called the Manhattan Project. We don't see the team. But man, they love that right. second issue. And we started getting all kinds of buzz after that. And the reason why this is, is and this is something I talk to my wife about this is Feynman is very prissy in the book. He's very looking in the mirror and checking on himself. Now, every time I drew him, I was drawing him like that. But if you only do it once early, you don't have to do it again. People will know when they read the book that he's like that because we let him talk to himself in the mirror once. But instead for me, since I'm in the panel panel, like Oh yeah. And he's the, he's the effeminate one and he's the masculine one. And I keep doing that over and over again. It's very, it comes off as very cartoony, but now with Axe Wilder, if I need to establish him as this brutal killer, I just show, I mean, there's many awesome kills, but I show one great kill. And then I have the frame narrator say he was a brutal killer. You know that for the rest of the narrative, you don't need to be talked down to. And so like pulling back in the writing is what I realized John was doing but I wasn't mm. in my illustrating. And with Wilder, I'm much more aware of the whole than I am the in the there's like systems have like a brain and an arm. John was the brain of Manhattan projects and I was the arm down in the panels with, with Wilder, I'm having to grow a brain and really think about how this system works and not just live in like, not just draw a head rolling down, not just draw his tongue splatted in half and then go to the next thing. And next thing it's like, no, five pages established this idea for John by page 15, this by 30 rotated on its head, this character that you said this about, it's still true. But on page 45, we do this and it'll catch the lull because you pad this on 35 and now 45, you got a little tent pole. I'm thinking about it as a structure instead of panel to panel and just riding it, you know, and just going. And it's just a, it's a whole different mindset. And I don't know if that makes sense, but it's, it's what I do with the book.
0: Sure, sure. No, it's really interesting. I mean, I think that's the, one of the things that you can identify in creators who really get it and have a feel for it is they don't hold your hand, right? Yeah. And they know they don't need to hold your hand. I think it's something like Morrison is is the absolute expert at. I think Hickman's a great example. It's like they, they can give you these little bits and trust you to figure it out or meet them halfway, right? And, and I think that is just like, yeah, like you don't have to, keep reminding us this guy's tough we see it. yeah no that, <laughs> you that's, know, that's, that's so it's so
1: important Like uh, you get it completely and john's favorite um jonathan hickman's favorite writer is grant morrison and he's all about trusting the reader and not talking down to them and when i read a book that talks down to me i honestly don't like it you know like i don't need the extra yeah. exposition yeah. you're forcing characters to say things when in their environment They've been around each other all the time. They would not bring up some detail that's in passing, but but you clearly need to feed it to the reader again because you're insecure that you didn't establish it. Letting the reader have a little nugget is so interesting because like in Manhattan Project, since you're in the Reader's Club, I'll get a little more specific, but there's a line that Groves has in the dialogue, and I don't really care about the dialogue sometimes. I like care about illustrating everything perfect, but he says... Uh, when the origami monsters attacked because they faxed something over and, uh, and it's all in dialogue. Right. But I didn't illustrate it. Fans would come up to Mm. me and be like, you know, years later and be like, Oh, when those origami monsters attacked and I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I didn't draw that. But in their head, it lives. You know, their, their yeah, imagination yeah. is participating in the storytelling in such a way just because you gave them that little bit of dialogue, Hickman. And that's crazy to me because they, in their head, I've drawn an origami monster attack in the Manhattan Projects. That never happened. Yeah. And I didn't And get this. In the script, it, when, I, when I was illustrating it, that line wasn't in there. So by the time I'm reading it and to figure out what Hickman's put in their words in the mouth, I'm, I'm just completely detached and I don't really remember it. But the fans hear that mm-hmm. one line, same thing with Morrison and they start participating in the storytelling in a very interesting way to the point where I've drawn it to some people now. It's crazy.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that is fascinating. Uh, why, did, why did Manhattan Project stop when it did? did? Did you guys ever like feel like you wanted to do more?
1: Yeah we've, I mean there's a lot set up in the like little nuggets as far as not not um, over explaining stuff to readers, but there's a whole there's a really wonderful story with Oppenheimer. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff like I'll talk a little bit about since you got a reader's club for it, but, uh, man, we had like behind the scenes, this is off the table now, but we've got other stuff brewing for it. But we had, the uh, uh, Trey stone and or Trey Parker, Matt stone. I forget their names.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah they
1: love the book, man. They were like all about it. They call it Hickman up about it. Like this is early on. Okay. No yeah, so we had that like buzz for a while. And then we had, uh, now there's another, there's somebody else really big interested in it right now. So, but Hickman never announces this stuff. It just kind of, he doesn't like to do say anything unless it's happening. So, which I get, Uh, but what happened was uh, the first two, this is how I personally feel about Manhattan Project. Since I told you exactly how I feel about Leviathan. The first two books, me and Hickman plotted out tight, like super tight. We would get together Mm -hmm. and we'd say, okay. Um, And I don't know if your listeners have read the whole thing again, but I'll say spoiler alert right now. But we knew everything that was going to happen plot-wise. It was definitely, we danced to get there in the panel-to-panel in the panel stuff because it was Marvel style. But we knew when this guy was coming back and the second he was turned good, this guy was going to come back and think he was the bad one and blah, blah, blah. We knew all that. Mm-hmm. We planned that out from day one. Mm-hmm. Everything after issue 20 was flying by the seat of our pants. And so I loved mm-hmm. the first 20 and then I felt like we just weren't clicking. And Hickman was so busy. He wanted me to like be even just, just giving me looser stuff. And I was like, we need to sit down and do some plot points here. And then with uh, – then, so he's like, well, let's relaunch it with Sun and Stars. We'll end this with everyone going their own way. And he wants to – He we plan to do a trade paperback for each one. And Sun and Stars was Yuri Gagarin and Laika. And, uh, I,
0: a, a trade for each character. A, a trade for about? each character huh? and then yeah. have
1: them come back for the big Oppenheimer thing because – they're all setting stuff up for Oppenheimer's big arc. So this is all planned in the book and yeah. we so we knew this, but then uh, Hickman was like I'll give you full scripts because you are tired of the whims- of the looseness of this and I'll just do full scripts, but I he just never he never had time to do them. And then when I got married, you know, 4 or 5 years ago, right and he was like, "I'm going to get you full scripts," and I was like, "Okay," because I'm getting married and I need this money because Manhattan Projects pays incredible; like, I make so much money off of that. <laughs> I was like, "I can't wait for these scripts," but uh, he never gave me this. He yeah. never had time to get the scripts, you know. And so I mm-hmm. never got the full script. So we were planning on going back to full scripts, and we didn't. And then uh, I never pushed. And then by then, it kind of tinkered out. And we had, we, and we do have the media stuff. He says we'll go back to it when we announce uh, whatever could be brewing but i can't oh, okay. say because then it, the, yeah, then yeah. it will have more heat we'll have a new a our new trade and uh, i really want to focus on what the einsteins are up to because in the end of 20 einsteins the einsteins are like the the good and bad one from two different universes have now met up and uh they're gonna be a, there's like really cool adventures and i i started laying out a story uh, marvel style And I've got like 20 roughs for it, but I never drew it because I never got really script. And and Hickman didn't even give me anything for it. I was like, oh, this would be a cool adventure if they did this one thing together. And, uh, but we never really, it's just kind of in limbo, but we're, me and Hickman are really close friends and, uh, we, we will get back to it at some point. Uh, but it's just kind of, it kind of fizzled, you know, is the best way to say it. It just kind of fizzled.
0: So yeah. No, I, I appreciate you sharing all that and explaining all that because you, you see all these rumors, right? Fans fans assume the worst, I think, way too often. But it's like, oh, they had a falling out and they can't stand each other and that's why there's no more. And it's and then you're talking about it. You're like, yeah, John, give me notes on, on my book I'm working on. It's like, that's not true at all. No, no,
1: I've, I've seen those rumors too. I don't know where they come from. Like, that is so weird yeah, because yeah. like I have this very forward-facing, like with the layman thing, I guess I'm breaking all oh, my rules now, is like always have a front to the public that is stoic, don't tell them your politics. Don't tell them anything like everything is quiet. And, but, and so forward facing should be good. But if you don't say anything, people will start being like, this is cra- like, this is crazy. Like I don't tweet at John and look for affection from him or ask him to retweet my stuff. So then it look might look publicly we're cold, but privately we're messaging each other all the time and telling them, Hey, what's up, man, what are you doing? And or calling me and asking me for advice and vice versa and talking about stuff like we're perfectly good. But then what people will run with if you don't say anything is like, a, and that's what social media does. If you think about it, you can retweet something very normal in context, but you can retweet it, and the the top of that retweet, you can frame as something different. And it is everyone's just framing everyone like on social media. They're just reframing narratives, mm-hmm. and then one narrative you read, it's like socially, it's like a it's like a, a mind virus where then people say, okay, that's what I've heard, or I don't know where I heard that, but that's yeah. what I think. Yeah. But with him. It's only, and, and with Hickman especially, man, he could, you know, I mean, short of like, you know, getting with, hooking up with my wife, he can do whatever he wants. He launched my career. <laughs> he's made, he's launched my career. I have a house because of the guy, because of Manhattan Projects. Uh, he, he's done everything for me. Uh, he's the sweetest man ever. He's hilarious if you get to know him. He gives better advice than anyone in the industry I've ever met. And he's, he's literally done everything for me. I will, you will never hear a bad word, you know, in that movie, um, uh what was it it's a very popular movie with robin williams and uh it's uh i'll oh, goodwill hunting right and uh in yeah, goodwill yeah. hunting uh there's like a point where one of the characters is like you know why that piece of crap guy would hang out with them because he'll take a baseball bat to any you know any one of you guys if they tell you to and that's how i feel about hickman man if anyone comes at hickman mm-hmm. rob Liefeld, i'm looking at you rob, rob rob's always attacking hickman online <laughs> <laughs> Hickman's my guy. Like, that's like, he's my guy, dude. Like, uh, he's he's the real deal. Yeah. I would never, I've never said a bad thing about Hickman, uh, ever, you know? So that's an interesting thing, but whatever.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it's fascinating. That's awesome. I, lo- I love hearing that. Uh, okay. So we got to, we got to keep our, our ears to the ground on this Manhattan Projects news. Hopefully there's something in the pipeline there. I know these things getting licensed. It's always like, who knows where it'll go. So, you know, fingers crossed for you that that something takes off there and it, it actually hits the ground running. I mean, I got to say, Einstein's in the multiverse would be so hot right now. Like that is, I, that's everywhere. would I know, like that would hit I know.
1: it's sure. like perfect timing. And you know, if you notice, like it takes about 12 years for these properties, like the boys or whatever to come and like, really like it takes a while for the seed of how the comic book seeds, the public's mind until it percolates into the mass populace and Manhattan projects is, is there you're seeing all these shows that are kind of dealing with that. We're worried about mm-hmm. nuclear war right now. Like, it's like uh, it's manifesting itself or something like that, you know? So we'll see. We'll yeah. see if it happens.
0: Yeah. Cool, cool. All right. So we've, we've talked about uh, a whole bunch of stuff. What, what's your favorite license work you've done between Sam and Bobby Mojo World, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and Doom Patrol?
1: Ooh. Flex Mentalo means a lot to me. I love that character. Uh, I liked one. working yeah. on with Gerard Way and Jeremy Lambert on that. The, um, the turtle work was an interesting thing. They had always been trying to get me to do work, but I loved Michelangelo and I said, okay, let me write and draw my own Michelangelo story, but I didn't really know how to write. So I brought in a guy, John Lee. So I, we kind of just all the story. I don't count that as my writing debut. I get a story, I got sure. a story contribution for that, but I didn't write the script. Uh, uh, that one was cool because I got to play with my action figures again and, it was very much pencil ink and have a story credit was really interesting to me. I like that one a lot. That's the art. I spot blacks for the first time because he's in the sewer for most of it. And I'm not used to that. So it's a little different for me. Um, mm-hmm. Flex Metal was cool. The, the, the mojo world story was an insane story because it doesn't make any sense anymore out of context because at the time there was this big writer strike in Hollywood and they couldn't, they yeah. couldn't get screenwriters to uh to work right the the, the the guild or whatever just refused to work for some strike in hollywood so yeah. john hickman said okay mojo with his entertainment business all of his writers on strikes and so he said okay yeah. we're gonna bring in he's, he's gonna he's gonna take cannonball and sunspot they're gonna think they have to fight like mojo does for entertainment but instead of doing that he's gonna have them be his new writers and so what they did in that was they're going to write stories for mojo for to produce right and so that's what Mm -hmm. that's the Mm -hmm. gimmick but then what they do is they just make we didn't use pulp fiction but imagine if you're a listener it's pulp fiction but put a bunch of marvel characters in it or it's uh i forget you know all the spoofs we did but it was a bunch of movie spoofs with marvel characters and it was a very jokey version of hickman it's a very like seth fishery early version of me Uh, i'm very i'm very Mm -hmm. i tried really hard on it you know but it, I don't think it's the best work, but I do think I tried very hard, and so it was like we did like uh, we spoofed like a bunch of oddball movies that anyone now is like if they're like twenty five, you definitely don't know those movies, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like like weird science, like we did book we yeah, did like yeah. all the ones that Hickman liked, and you know Hickman's a little older than me, so they're like weird science and just random stuff, you know, and uh, it was fun. I, I love that. I love that because I launched my career and launched my friendship with John. Um, I think I, I like them all for different reasons, I guess. None of them I'm super proud of. I think the most proud that I've ever been is, uh, writing the f- script for Axwell or John and thinking I might have something here because I didn't know what I had, mm. you know? And then Manhattan Projects just means the world to me because I do enjoy that book. Like I didn't get it. I didn't get what the readers were getting out of it, but now reading it cold, I'm like, "Oh, this is actually a really cool book." And then uh, mm. when before we were nominated for an Eisner, by issue four, I called Hickman up and I said, "Dude, I just reread this, and we're going to get nominated for an Eisner, dude. This is good." And we did, you know. I was like, uh, and mm. I, I and he knew it was cool for a long time. So, uh, and I it took me about four issues to really get on board and be like, "This is super cool." And uh, yeah, that means a lot. Everything's interesting because. They're all tied to times in your life, you know, and uh, the one cool thing about working in comics and producing creatively is there are all these little timestamps that tie into, you know, your your kid being born or you're, you're, you're young and hungry as an artist or you get an email from Marvel sure. that's your big break. And I associate so much of the work with what's going on in my life. So at least I get these as like little timestamps, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, Axewilder John is the next one, the next chapter. Um, I think readers, again, check it out. We'll include a link to the show notes here uh, for the Zoop campaign. But Nick, where should people look for your stuff otherwise? Where where should people try to find you?
1: Um, Me online is just Nick Patera. Uh, One thing I did with Axewilder was I knew I was always going to crowdfund it and not pitch it. So I purposely showed as much art as I could as I've been producing it. So if you go to Nick Patera at, at Twitter or on Instagram or friend me on Facebook, you will see hundreds of posts with the art showing it off um and then i bought the url axewilder.com and tied it to the zoop campaign so if anyone wants to go there or we're on the front page of the zoop zoop zoop.gg campaign and they did a really cool thing with that page and just scanned my social media for the last year and built like a buzz section and you'll learn everything you need to know if you're interested in the book just go there and check it out
0: and when the when the books are done you can always convert com to like your axe hobby store yeah, right yeah. like reviews of axes and you got a you got a second affiliate business I, going. as soon as i
1: bought that url for like when i was 50 bucks i got like an offer for like 900 bucks for Axe. and i was like oh I'll score i was like i'm a, i'm keeping it though you know?
0: Flipping it. Yeah. Amazing. Awesome. Yeah, no, it's you've invested in Axe Wielder John and it, it, it's paying off. So that's cool to see. Uh, Nick, this was a blast. I super appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. And again, we'll include links in the show notes for people here to check out the work. So thanks so much.
1: Hey, thank you, Dave. I appreciate it.